Helen Keller was an American author and advocate for those with disabilities. You've heard her story. Incredibly accomplished. She wrote essays, graduated college, and traveled to more than 30 countries as a lecturer. What is most amazing is that she was both, you guys fill it in, blind and deaf. That's right. Born in Alabama in the late 1800s, she lost both her eyesight and her hearing as the result of a sickness when she was just 19 months old. She was stubborn, strong-willed, volatile, and violent as she lived in isolation, completely in the dark, both literally and figuratively. Powerless to be understood or connect with others, she lashed out in continual tantrums. Her family was at their wit's end, and so when she was seven years old, in a desperate effort to find help, her parents took her to Alexander Graham Bell. Yes, the same one that invented the telephone, as he was a friend to the deaf. He introduced Helen to her first teacher and lifelong friend, the then 20-year-old Anne Sullivan. Sullivan returned to Alabama with the family and attempted to teach Helen uh, language by spelling words using sign language uh, of familiar objects into her hand. Initially, this fingerspelling meant nothing to Keller, who became even more agitated by Sullivan's efforts. But then, one day a breakthrough occurred when Sullivan held one of Keller's hands under a pump from which the water flowed. In Helen's own words, as the cool stream gushed over one hand, Anne spelled into the other the word water, first slowly, then rapidly. I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the motions of her fingers. I knew then that W-A-T-E-R meant that wonderful, cool something that was flowing over my hand. That living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy, and set it free. Before the end of the day, she had learned more than 30 words. Her desire became insatiable and her thirst for knowledge only intensified as language became part of her life. Before my teacher came to me, I did not know that I am, Helen, uh, Helen wrote. I lived in a world that was a no world. I cannot hope to describe adequately that unconscious yet conscious time of nothingness. I did not know that I knew nothing or that I lived or acted or desired. She grew close to her teacher, and the two became inseparable lifelong friends until Sullivan's death some 50 years later. With Alexander Graham Bell, her benefactor, and Anne Sullivan, her faithful teacher, she learned not only to read and write, but also to speak. Her life, as you know, is an amazing story of the indomitable nature of the human spirit. Now, later in life, she was asked whether she had an understanding of God before she received the gift of language. She said she had always had an awareness of God, even before she had any way of communicating with the outside world. When God was ex explained to her, she exclaimed, oh, that's his name. I didn't know he had a name. In her lonely life of separation, isolation, having never been taught of God, how could she know that God exists? It is because the knowledge of God is one of the most innate parts of a person's being placed there by God himself. 
Isn't that what Romans 1.19 says? That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. This same understanding has been in the heart of every man and every woman throughout the ages. Revealed through creation itself, the eternal power and divine nature of God are seen through what has been made. All you have to do is sit on the seashore as the sun disappears beyond the horizon to recognize that we are just a small cog in this giant universe. We know inherently that there is something or someone greater than us. Since the beginning, man has sought to know this God, often searching in the darkness to do so. Cain, you remember this, offered sacrifices of his harvest. Aaron made a golden calf. Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire. The prophets of Baal cut themselves. And the people of Athens even designed an altar to an unknown God. Throughout every age and in every culture, man has made his best attempts to know God. And this only confirms what's in the very heart of man. A.W. Tozer wisely said, man was made to worship God. But if we are to know God, then we must go to where he has revealed himself, which is his word. It is only through the pages of scripture that we see God as more than an impersonal force, as he has disclosed himself to us there in his word as a personal God who has moral excellence, who is perfect in holiness, and who abounds in love. Now, as a church, we're in the middle of a study uh, in a series on the end times, and, and I got to say, it has been really helpful, hasn't it? This has been such a good look at the things to come, challenging, enlightening, encouraging, frightening, um, as we look ahead at God's divine timetable. Well, this morning, we're going to take a break from that study to examine the nature of God himself. We'll be looking at two different attributes of God that are directly related to the judgments that are coming in the end times. It is a fitting interlude before we come back next Sunday in Revelation 19 to, to witness the return of the king. So today we're going to look at both the love and the wrath of God. Two parts of God's character that at first glance seem to be at odds with each other, even a paradox, if you will, and yet Scripture teaches both without apology. The question arises, how can God be both loving and wrathful? Pick up the popular evangelistic tract that says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, while at the same time, he banishes his enemies to destruction. How is it that John 3.16 can say God so loved the world, while Psalm 5.5 says you hate all who do iniquity? On one hand, he's the savior of the world, motivated by love for his people. On the other hand, he's the righteous judge of the universe who will leave no sin unpunished. Now, our world widely accepts love as its chief virtue. The overarching message of our culture is that love will triumph. It is the theme of countless movies, books, and songs. I think about the movie Avengers Endgame. The most popular quote in the movie is, I love you. 3,000, all you nerd, marble nerds out there. <laughs> Looking into uh, the world of music, Carrie Underwood wrote a song called Love Wins. The chorus goes like this. Take this in, it's deep. I, I believe you and me are sisters and brothers. And I, I believe we're made to be here for each other. And we'll never fall if we walk hand in hand, put a world that seems broken together again. Yes, I, I believe in the end, love wins. 
There it is. There it is. That's our theme as a culture. Love will overcome. Many believe in this ethereal version of the love of God. He's a creator who takes care of his creation, a father who loves his children. So in the end, how can he be filled with wrath? How could the same effusively loving God also be a God of anger and judgment? Maybe you've heard this statement. Maybe you've said this statement. Well, the God I believe in would never fill in the blank. He would never be angry or send someone to hell or judge someone. It's not fair. It's not right. It's not what a loving God would do. In his best-selling book, Love Wins, Rob Bell writes the following line, quote, a staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. This is misguided and toxic and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs to know, end quote. But my friends, we do not get to define who God is. We cannot look at our experience or our feelings or our view on the world to define God. That would be a God of our own making who has been formed in our likeness and in our image. And God, the true God, is not beholden to us. He revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush as the great I am, the self-existent God. We don't invent God or project our insecurities or lack of understanding onto his character. Instead, we let the scripture define who God is. And that's our plan this morning. My goal today is to deepen our understanding of who God is so that we can know him more intimately and love him more fully. And so just to give you an overview, we're going to look first at the love of God, then the wrath of God. Then we're going to see how these two um, intermix and mingle together and then We'll close with a few questions. But caution, we are in the deep end of the pool this morning. And you need to focus right now and stay with this. And watch as this unfolds according to the scriptures so that we can see this great God and worship him. we got a lot of work to do and we don't have a lot of time, so let's dive in. Point number one, the love of God. The love of God. Let me begin with a quote that you may recognize uh, if you were part of our community group study this semester as we walk through the book, Knowing God. Did you enjoy that? Phenomenal, yes? J.I. Packer says, when we look at God's wisdom, we see something of his mind. When we think of his power, we see something of his hand and his arm. When we consider his word, we learn about his mouth. But now, contemplating his love, we look into his very heart. That's good. As we look into his love, I've split this into five headings, which are by no means exhausted, but will just give us a little bit of form as we go through this, and this is the tip of the proverbial iceberg. First, let's, let's say that God's nature is love. God's nature is love. You'll recognize 1 John 4, 8, where the apostle John tells us God is love. Commenting on this verse, A.W. Pink says it is not just that God loves, but that he is love itself. Love is not merely one of his attributes, but his very nature. We cannot say, on the flip side, that love is God, for love does not define God, but God defines love. It is who he is. Now, in an effort to help illustrate this, I want you to think about Tom Brady of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He's 43 years old, has led his teams to six Super Bowl wins, 
been awarded four Super Bowl MVPs, played in 14 Pro Bowls. He is the GOAT, right? The greatest of all time. And when you think of Tom Brady, you think of a quarterback. In an unrelated story, Francisco Martinez has a Patriots jersey that he's selling. (laughs) Now, that's an inside joke, I'm sorry, but we don't care to see Tom Brady doing needlepoint or Tom Brady cooking or Tom Brady swinging a hammer. We want to see Tom Brady throwing a football. He is a quarterback. It is what defines him. It is who he is. And you'll have to forgive the rudimentary nature of the illustration as it falls short, but in a similar way, when we think about God, we understand that love flows from him because it is who he is. Now, in the Greek, there are a handful of words used for love. In the original language, and the, uh, the New Testament was written, there's some different words. You have the word eros. It's a type of romantic lover, a love of physical attraction. You have the word storge, which is more of a familial family love. You have the, love, the word phileo, which is a brotherly friendship type of love. But the word used most often to describe the love of God is the familiar word agape. And this highest form of love is an unconditional, self-giving, self-sacrificial love. Now, let's see how this love is described. Let's look next that God's love is eternal. God's love is eternal. As God has no beginning, neither did his love, which is why in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, he said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And it was before creation, before time even began, that God set his heart and therefore his love on those whom he would redeem. In Ephesians 1.4, Paul says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now look at these two words at the end of verse 4 that we often miss. I don't know why they should have moved verse 5 two words earlier. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. What this is telling us is that before the world was made, before time began, before you were born, God had already set his love on you. And we can infer from this that because God loved you from eternity past, he is also going to love you into eternity future. Not only is God's love eternal, God's love is also sovereign. His love is sovereign. He loves according to his own choice and for his own divine pleasure. The love of God is spontaneous unevoked and uncaused. Said a different way, God is uninfluenced. He is free, unhindered, and he loves whom he desires. A.W. Tozer said, because God is God, he does as he pleases. Because God is love, he loves as he pleases. Think of this biblically in Romans chapter 9, verse 13. Where God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And if you chase that around, which is a pretty strong statement in that passage, you find out before the twins were born, before they had done right or wrong, God had set his electing love on Jacob, the huckster, the trickster. Why? It is his sovereign choice to do so. He is free to lavish his love on those whom he chooses. 
Speaking of Israel and why God chose them, Deuteronomy 7, 8 says, The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Look at verse 8. He chose you, why? But because the Lord loved you. There is nothing in us that attracts us to him or attracts him to us. Nothing of note that brings his attention or catches his eye. He doesn't love us because of what we have done or who we are. There is a misnomer in today's evangelical world that we are special and we must be special in order to draw God's love. We, we must have great worth or else God would not have loved us. But it's totally backward. Martin Luther said, God doesn't love us because of our worth. We are of worth because God loves us. And that love comes by his own sovereign choice. Next, God's love is infinite. His love is infinite. This is true of all parts of the nature of God, the infinite nature. He is omnipresent, that is, he is everywhere, fills all space. He is omniscient, that is, he knows everything and has all knowledge. He is omnipotent, that is, he has all power and is unencumbered by anything. And since God is without limits, listen, so too is his love. The Old Testament speaks of hesed, It's a word used over and over in the Old Testament to describe the unfailing, steadfast love that is effusively shown to his people. It has a height which no one can climb. It has a depth which no one can plumb. It is from east to west, and it is defined and described as immeasurable. Now, one year for Halloween, uh, Tracy and I, in preparation for the onslaught of trick-or-treaters, we went to the store to purchase the candy. We filled a large pillowcase-sized bag with delicious and name-brand-only candy. Don't bring your Mars bars or your Almond Joys or uh, your black licorice or your Raisinets or your Tootsie Rolls. Don't bring your good and plenty around here. We want the good stuff. Yes? Am I right? And so we had the good stuff, and we had plenty of it. And for hours, we lavished our neighbors with all sorts of delectable treats. We were, we were it. There was nothing um, I mean, excuse me, we, we did all sorts of goodness in that, but then it happened. I reached into the bag, and it was empty. Nothing left, but the kids kept coming. <laughs> the doorbell kept ringing. They needed candy. And so in a panic, I ran into the house and began running around the house going, what am I going to do? I'll give them some substitute, I thought. And so I resorted to packets of seasoning from the spice cabinet (laughs) and vegetables from the refrigerator and magazines from our living room and small headshots of myself from my senior portrait when I was in high school, which was my personal favorite. (laughs) True story. Parents came back up like, what is this? (laughs) Anyway, I think this is how our love is. Don't you think? In some ways, we give it to those around us in measured doses, sometimes with less than perfect motives. When it runs out, we replace it with less than adequate substitutes. But this never happens with God. His store of love is infinite. He never reaches into the bag and finds it empty. He's not trying to wring out one more drop of love to make sure that every one of us gets just a little bit. His love was without bounds, And it comes from a limitless supply. 
This is why in his prayer in Ephesians 3.18, the Apostle Paul prays that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That is a great prayer. Can I encourage you to add that to your prayer list this week? That's a prayer for your small group. It's a prayer for your community group. It's a prayer for your spouse, for your high school or your junior higher, that they would comprehend, or in the Greek, literally seize and take hold of that love. That word comprehend, to grab a hold of it. That word to know it is an experiential love. It's a love in an intimate way, that they would experience the infinite love of God in a personal and intimate way. That's a great prayer for our hearts and for those in our worlds. God's love is infinite. God's love is also unchanging. God's love is unchanging. Are you thankful that God does not love you today and then change his mind tomorrow? He is not fickle or capricious. His love does not vacillate and is not erratic. No, that's how we love with our affections coming and going. I I love this new phone. I love this new dress. I love this girl. I love this guy. Only to quickly find that our affections and therefore that our loves change. Our love is impacted by circumstance, by energy levels. You're just back from man camp or woman maker. Your energy level's a little down this morning, right, um, high school students, by, uh, by hormones, by a host of other ever-changing parts of our life. We are up today. We are down tomorrow. But this is not true of God. Finish this verse from Hebrews 13.8 with me. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God does not change with the times or the seasons, but remains constant. James 1.17 says that with him there is no variation or shifting shadow. And so our God who has set his love on us will never leave us or forsake us. He will never abandon his own. There is nothing in this universe that can break the chains of love that God has for us. And so in a response, in a, in a heart that's completely full and overflowing, Paul says in Romans 8.38, For I am convinced... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, and in case he missed it, nor any other created thing, none of that will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God has been lavished upon you. Sometimes, though, we forget, don't we? Sometimes we get into the midst of a trial and we're tempted to doubt his love. We may even question him, saying, if he loved me, then why does he let this happen? It hurts. I'm in pain. The sorrow is too great. And we start to question, God, does he really love me? And when this happened, my friends, our eyes are on ourself. Can I encourage you to come out from the shadows and see the love of God in your unsure future, in your physical ailment, in your spiritual depression, in your lonely grief, in your financial ruin, learn to trust the God who loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Jesus Storybook Bible. The love of God is limitless. 
It is eternal. It is sovereign. It never changes. And Christian, that is very good news. Let's take it to our second point. Let's look number two at the wrath of God. The wrath of God. There is no other attribute of God that is as misunderstood, confused, and even scorned as this one. Many Christians feel the need to make apology for this seeming blight on the character of God. Well, you, you see, the God of the Old Testament was a God of wrath and judgment, but the God of the New Testament is the God of love and mercy. Statements like this show that we, we don't fully understand the nature of God. And as an indictment on us, instead of going and gaining deeper insight, we ignore it and focus on the, the happier aspects of God's character. And yet what one writer said, a study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. And to say it very succinctly, you cannot rightly understand the love of God until you understand his wrath. So let's take a few minutes to see what the Bible teaches about God's wrath. First, let me define it for you. I I like John Piper's definition. I think I gave it to you in your notes. It says, it is God's settled anger towards sin expressed in the repayment of suitable vengeance on the guilty sinner. Now, let's look first at the inception of wrath. The inception of wrath. A question for you. Has God always been loving, yes or no? Yes. Okay, good. We just looked at that. You passed. Here's a tougher one. Think about it for a minute. Has God always been wrathful? If you answered yes, who was God angry at before creation when it was just the Trinity? Interesting, right? When did God's wrath first appear? Not till after sin entered his universe. Let's use the definition given by A.W. Pink. God's wrath is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. We could say the wrath of God is God's eternal detestation of all that's unrighteous or his displeasure toward evil. So let me go back to my question. Is the wrath of God eternal? Yes, in that he is holy and detests any and all sin. That's part of his nature. But, and D.A. Carson says it this way, where there is no sin, there is no Excuse me, there is no wrath. He goes on to say, where God in his holiness confronts his image bearers in their rebellion, there must be wrath, or God is not the jealous God he claims to be. The expression of his wrath then comes as a result of sin. Any violation of his sovereignty, affront to his moral perfection, or insurrection against his rule are sin. And so the wrath of God is a vindication of his own holiness to any who have challenged his dominion in the universe. David Wells said, God's wrath is not an aberration, not some kind of deviation from who he is. It is an expression of his holiness, and that holiness is what God has been like from all eternity. I think that's helpful. Next, we'll say that God's wrath is terrible. God's wrath is terrible. His anger kindled against sin and poured out on the sinner is a frightening thing. Let me just read some scripture here. Isaiah 13, verse 4, it says, The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. 
They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Said much more succinctly in Hebrews 10.31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Matthew 10.28 says, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Again, some will say this is the God of the Old Testament, wrath, fire, brimstone, judgment. We see it all across the Old Testament. But in the coming of Christ, we see a different God, a changed God, a God of love. But this is not true. God is unchanging in love, and he is unchanging in his hatred of sin. Just one verse to help with this. Revelation 6.14, at the very end, this is fascinating. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, where is it? Yeah, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. There it is. Fall on us from God. We don't want to face him. We're terrified of this. But look at the next phrase. And hide us from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who is able to stand? The wrath of God will be dreadful. It will be fierce. And it will be terrible. terrible. And even harder to accept is that God's wrath next is final. His wrath is final. We have seen this demonstrated throughout history. When the devil and his angels sinned, God threw them from heaven and created a lake of fire to be their eternal home. When Adam and Eve sinned, he cursed the earth and banished them from his presence. When the earth was full of sin and the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually, God flooded the earth with water, sparing but eight souls. Because their sin was exceedingly grave, fire fell from heaven, consuming Sodom and Gomorrah. And because they lied to the Holy Spirit, Ananias and Sapphira fell dead in the middle of a church service. God's wrath poured out on sin is definitive. It is conclusive. But there is a future version or a final version of the wrath of God that is yet in the future. And Revelation 20 describes the scene on that day. The day in which each man, each woman will enter the divine courtroom to be tried for their crimes against God. Look at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds." Skip down to 15, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Once the gavel falls and the sentence has been declared, the judgment of God is absolute and fully binding on the sinner. There are no last-minute appeals, there are no reprieves, for there is no higher court to which the appeal can be made. This is not some form of purgatory that only lasts for a time. This is not a punishment that will end in some form of soul sleep or the annihilation of the sinner. God's judgment is decisive and it is, listen, irreversible. And the sinner will experience the wrath of God in hell forever. It is final. Let me take you to one more. God's wrath is justified. 
His wrath is justified. No one will face the wrath of God who doesn't deserve it. Now, to some, this seems a bit extreme. Does my sin against God really, really deserve hell? How can it be that that lustful thought or that thoughtless word is actually going to lead to an eternal damnation? We might be tempted to think that God is overreacting, right? Or maybe he isn't acting fairly. But this is far from the case. Let me explain. If I sin against one of my children, and if I lie to them, there is little consequence to me. If I lie to my wife, the consequence grows. If I lie to my boss, I may lose my job. If I lie to a policeman, he may arrest me. If I lie to a judge, I'm guilty of perjury and could go to jail. Which, with each of these situations, the higher the level of authority, the greater the consequence for the violation. Now, if I sin against God, the ultimate and sovereign judge of all, who is holy and who is infinite in nature, then the offense against him is infinite. And so the punishment is also infinite. And what is this sin? It is every thought, word, and deed that has fallen short of his perfect standard. Every attack on his sovereignty, every infraction against his holiness, every question of his goodness, every doubt of his love, every worship of a lesser God. It is the big sins, the little sins, the public sins, the private sins, the deliberate sins, the sins of omissions, the sins of commission, the one-time offenses, the repeat offenders, your favorite sin, the darling sin, even your most shameful sin. Every sin has been cataloged and will bear witness against you on that day. And so the natural response for us is, is to try to fix this, right? We want to fix our problem with God. We want to try to earn favor with him. Certainly I can appease God by good deeds through kindness and caring and compassion on others. Certainly on that day, when the divine scales come out, my good is going to outweigh my bad, and God will let me into heaven based on my achievements. But friend, that's far from true. Isaiah tells us even our very best efforts are nothing more than filthy rags in the presence of his holiness. We could never earn favor with the holy God, not in our lifetime and not in a thousand lifetimes. At best, the sinner is just amassing more and more wrath. That's what Romans 2.5 says. It says that wrath is being stored up for the day of judgment. Or in the words of 2 Thessalonians 1.7, it says the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and here it is, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. His hatred for sin is complete, total, and unwavering, and his wrath is justified because of the disobedience of those who did not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we could say that wrath is God's justice in action, awarding the sinner what they deserve. Now, my family's had the opportunity, uh, even a privilege, I would say, of going to Zion National Park in Utah a handful of times. If you've been there, it's a beautiful place. If you haven't, you should go. There's a little town there called Springdale before you enter the park. And uh, if you're ever there with Steve West... He will probably buy you the town's secret favorite little treat there, bumbleberry pie. It's delicious. Go get it. Okay. 
But this park, Zion, is, is um, located in a slot canyon. You understand what a slot canyon is? It's kind of a long canyon that is walled on both sides with mountains. It kind of comes out of a canyon, gets wider and wider. Um, the, the river has carved its way through deeper and deeper. But there's 1,000-foot peaks on both sides. And when you enter the park, you hop into the tram uh, that follows the river up the canyon. And there's the guide on the tram comes on. Well, if you look off to the left, you'll see Angel's Landing. It's a six-mile hike. Uh, there's chains at the top. Don't fall off. Up here to the right, you have Weeping Rock, which is an outcropping of rock where the, the water comes through and seeps out the bottom, about 20 degrees cooler in this hanging garden. Beautiful place. And over here, back to the left again, we have the Court of the Patriarchs, uh, named after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's these just mountainous peaks. All right, well, we're at the end here. Please exit the tram. Uh, and if you'd like to continue on foot, you can. And so you get off the tram because it's gotten narrow enough that there is no longer a road. There's just a trail that, that comes with the river right next to it. And you keep walking up. And you get to a point where it gets thin enough that there's no trail any longer. There's just the river. And that's where the actual hike starts. It's called the Narrows. And with, with hundreds of feet of rock on both sides, um, sheer cliffs going up, maybe 20 or 30 feet across, you're hiking up the river um, as the river comes down. It is a gorgeous hike. And so there's my family. We're out there. Um, Zoe's maybe three or four. She's kind of stumbling along on these rocks as we go up. Haley's in a backpack on my back, and it's a beautiful day, gorgeous. Sun's out, not a cloud in the sky, and we are having a great time going up this winding canyon. And we've been out there in the narrows for about 30 minutes when out of nowhere, a peal of thunder came roaring down the canyon walls, stopping us dead in our tracks. It sounded like a piece of wood was being rent, splintering into a thousand directions as it echoed down the river. As soon as it was quiet, Tracy goes, that's it, we're out of here. <laughs> we're going back. And wisely so, she didn't want to be in the canyon, right, if there was a flash flood. My response, seriously? <laughs> we just got here. There's people all over the place. I'm looking up. There's nothing up there. And so there I am. It was just one thunderhead. No big deal, honey. Let's enjoy the hike. Soon after, the thunder clapped again with even more intensity, and Tracy again pushed me to head back. I delayed again. And, but as the thundering became more consistent, eventually I listened and we turned around and exited the river. As we came down, there were still people all around us going the opposite direction. Ignoring, as it were, the God-given warning and continuing up the river. Now, nothing happened that day. It was just thunder, and there was nothing to worry about. But I think it's a good picture of the impending wrath of God and our response to it. Today, right now in these chairs, life seems pretty good. The sun is shining, and there seems to be very little reason for concern. Life is going well. But a pandemic strikes or a loved one passes away or you sit in a message like this and like a thundercloud echoing through a slot canyon, God very quickly has your full attention. Some, like my wife, very quickly run from the wrath of God to safety. Let's get out of here and abandon ship before it's too late. Others, like me, say, seriously? It's just one thunderhead. No big deal. The sun is still shining. Let's enjoy the hike. I want to tell you that this morning, God is speaking to you. 
He is graciously warning you. It may be sunny today, but mark this, a storm is brewing. It is coming, and if you're caught in its way, there will be no escape. The wrath of God is terrible. It is final, and you and I stand without excuse. Don't ignore that still small voice in your head that is telling you to make your soul ready to meet God. One day it will be too late. J.I. Packer says, nobody stands under the wrath of God except those who have chosen to do so. Let me take you one step farther here into point number three, and let's look at love and wrath on display. Love and wrath on display. The ultimate demonstration of both the love and the wrath of God is at the cross of Jesus Christ. Like no other event in history, it shows these off in clear picture. Let me take you to Calvary, and I want you to put your mind there as I, as I bring this to you. Jesus is being led to the cross. He's been punched in the face, crown of thorns pounded in his head, has his back ripped open by a whip, all the while he's being mocked, and in silence he's turning the other cheek. Now you've got to get there mentally to understand this and to see these two things play together. He's brought outside the city walls to the place of execution, and I can picture the scene in heaven, right? The angels are up there. This is figurative. We don't know this, but the angels are up there, as it were, with their toes over the edge of heaven, and they're looking down. It was just one night earlier that Jesus in the garden had prayed and said, if I, if I asked, legions of angels, tens of thousands of angels would be here at my beckoning to do my will. But here they stand, looking at the Son of God as he's laid on the cross. In bewilderment, they see, a, they see a soldier take up a large nail and position it on Jesus' wrist, and then a hammer preparing to pound the nail through his flesh. And they stand there waiting for the word, armed to the teeth. They're waiting for the Father to dispatch them to go to the rescue of the Son. But no command is issued. The Father is silent. The first nail is pounded through Jesus' hand then the other, then into his feet. The cross is hoisted up, and there he hangs, suspended between earth and heaven, dying. God was dying. The giver of life, the maker of the heavens and the earth, and the one who created the very tree that he was hanging on was dying. And all along, the father is silent. He doesn't go to the rescue of his son, but instead, he turns his back on his son. And all of heaven now witnesses something profound. The Father pours out his furious, unbending, unwavering, infinite wrath upon his Son. The universe goes dark. The earth shakes. Rocks are split in half as creation itself becomes, begins to become undone. Jesus cries out the scream of the damned, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he bears the weight of the sins of the world, your sin and my sin has been placed upon Christ as he pays the penalty you deserve. And so he died. God died. And I, I want to just clarify, because you have to understand what's happening on the cross. Sure, the cross is the worst form of torture and execution ever invented by man, and that's part of it. But what happened on the cross is far more than what the eye can see. Jesus Christ took in his body all of your sin. It was as if he had lived your life full of sin, as if he had hated, lusts, 
lusted, stolen, lied, cheated, and every other sin. And while he was hanging on that cross, God, infinitely holy God, the one who cannot look at sin, treated Jesus as if he had lived your sin-filled life, and he poured out his wrath on his son. Jesus then experienced hell on that cross. Isn't that the payment for sin that God has prescribed? Eternal death in hell? That's what Jesus bore while he hung there. It is no wonder that the Father turned away. It is no wonder that the sky went dark and the earth shook. He drank every last drop of the wrath of God on your behalf. Charles Spurgeon said one of my favorite quotes. It seemed as if hell were put into his cup. He seized it, and in one tremendous labor of love, he drank damnation dry. It begs the question, why? Why would he do this? What is the motivation? Romans 5, 8 says it best. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And you cannot fully understand that love of God until you've looked into the cup of wrath that you deserve. In his critically acclaimed new book, Doctrine 101, author Bill O'Brallahan compares the wrath of God to a jeweler who's showing a diamond to a buyer. The diamond sparkles and shimmers on its own. But when the jeweler places it against a black velvet cloth, it shines forth even brighter. Set against such a stark backdrop, it seems as if the diamond comes alive, dancing in the light, shining forth with intense brilliance. Against the backdrop of God's wrath, the beauty of his love is magnified, shining forth all the brighter. The cross of Jesus Christ is the greatest display of the love and wrath of God in divine history. And so we must respond. And as we move to a close, I've just got three really quick questions for you. Number one, will you escape the wrath to come? I speak now to those who are not yet Christians. If you're in this room and you don't know Christ, thank you for coming. We love having you here. J.I. Packer says, all that stands between us sinners and the thunderclouds of divine wrath is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so like John the Baptist in Matthew, Matthew 3, I beg you to flee from the wrath to come. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of God, we persuade men. And so with all my might and little abilities that I have here this morning, I beg you, I persuade you, I implore you to confess your sin, to bend the knee, and to give your allegiance to the Son of God. Embrace the love of Christ before it's too late. Come to him as Savior today or face him tomorrow as your judge. May God grant you freedom from sin and release you from the wrath of God. Number two, Will you hate sin like God does? This addresses directly to Christians. Christian, are you dabbling in sin, playing with sin, trifling with it, being entertained by it? That sin that God hates, 
that sin for which Christ died. God is so serious about sin that he crushed his own son, Isaiah 53 says, as payment. And so pornography must be put away. That impure relationship must be severed. That flirting that's going on at work that nobody else really knows about must be done. The cheating at school, the outbursts of anger, that, that foul tongue must be put to death. We must hate sin the way that God hates sin. Romans 13, 12 gives us the starting point for this. It says, the night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. You want to know how? Here it is. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Leave it behind. Listen, and love Jesus Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength in the same way that he first loved you. And this takes us to our third final question. Will you worship this God? Will you worship this God? I think this is a very fitting end. Moses is on Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, and I want you to see these two attributes, these two characteristics of God mingled together. Verse 6, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And we would say, yes, hallelujah, he does. Yet, part of his perfection, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation, having literally seen God with his own eyes, the one who loves but who exercises wrath, watch verse 8. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. That's the right response, is it not? To worship this God as he's revealed himself to us. And so we've seen him this morning in new and bright and beautiful ways. And the diamond shines even brighter, does it not? Father, we now come to you as we close this time and we bow low in worship. We recognize that you are our only defense, and so we cling to you. We say, thank you for what you have done. For those who still are lost in their sin, who are still grappling with all that's going on in their hearts and lives, would you draw them to yourself in your kindness and love this morning? For the rest of us, as we sing now, would you hear our hearts as we worship you and say, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.